0: Perched atop atop our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., is a 20-foot statue known as the Freedom Lady. It was sculpted in Rome, and it was imported to America. But during its delivery, the ship encountered howling winds and raging seas, an intense storm. The water was so severe that the captain feared the boat might capsize. And so he ordered the cargo thrown overboard. And yet when the crew went to toss over the freedom lady, the skipper stopped him. He shouted over the noise of the storm, No, never. We're flounder before we throw away our freedom. And this is Paul's message in Galatians 5. Never throw away your freedom. And yet many Christians do. They allow a subtle, seductive form of legalism to inflate their pride and cause them to think they deserve God's blessing. Because of what they do or they don't do, God now owes them. Whether their rules are of their own making or a part of some tradition, their work proves their worthiness, and they toss aside the grace-based freedom that God intended for them to enjoy." Yet true Christianity teaches us the opposite. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Even the most obedient among us is still unworthy. But God has extended his grace. On the cross, Jesus did all that needed to be done to pay the debt of your sin and earn for you God's pardon and blessing. Now your job is to humble yourself and put your faith in his merits alone. And yet sometimes the storm still blows. Legalism bullies its way back in. A friend or perhaps a preacher or even our own misinformed conscience tells us that we should be doing more. That if we really want to measure up to God and really please Him, we need to do more. And we begin to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. We add a few good deeds just to be on the safe side. But hey, we're going to learn this morning, trying to be on the safe side is what's going to put you on the wrong side. For when we lean toward legalism, we diminish the cross of Christ. We drift from God's grace. In essence, we throw away our freedom. Galatians is Paul's warning. Well, chapter 5 begins, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free... And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Jesus sets us free from the treadmill of performance based religion. It's no longer about our striving and never measuring up. We live now by faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 15, Peter told the Jerusalem church not to expect Gentile believers to conform to the Jewish law. He said to them there in verse 10, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Notice Peter referred to the demands of the law as a yoke. And a yoke is no joke. It's a harness that chokes off the joy in the life of God. Anytime Christians stop living by faith in Jesus and rely on their own efforts, they're buckling back on that yoke. This is what the false teachers had done to the Galatians. Rather than teach them to live by grace and faith, they had turned up the treadmill. They demanded that the Christians in Galatia live by a concoction of laws and traditions. It was a lethal self-righteousness. And here's how it happens. See, the legalist appears so pious, so disciplined, so sincere That new believers get intimidated. Who are we to buck such a spiritual person? Some religious folks like to throw their weight around. By enforcing their rules, they can control others or make themselves look good or create a pecking order in their church. And the new believer gets sucked into all this. Because of his ignorance or fear or uncertainty, he becomes saddled with unnecessary baggage. A person who Jesus died to save, to set free, ends up living under a yoke of bondage. This is why freedom is always unfinished business. That's not only true politically, it's also true spiritually. There's always someone trying to rob you of your liberty. This is why Paul tells the new believers in Galatia, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. There will always be people trying to strap you into a new harness, stand fast, and stay free. And then Paul tells the Galatians, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. See, a big part of the yoke being forced on the Galatians was Jewish circumcision. The false teachers insisted that they adopt this Old Testament ritual. To please God, they needed to wear this physical badge of circumcision. And yet real faith is under the lapel. It's under the badge. It's unseen. Real faith is in the heart. See, religion relies on external badges. But God wants faith in our hearts. And even today, there are some churches and pastors that still emphasize the outward badges, like church membership, or baptism, or daily devotions, or homeschooling your kids, or speaking in tongues, or tithing, or keeping a holy day one above another. All these activities are good, perhaps, and serve a purpose, but when they're made mandatory for pleasing God, you insult God's grace. And you diminish the work of Jesus. It's faith in Jesus alone that makes us right with God. And notice Paul's strong warning in verse 2. If you adopt the thinking, I'll practice some legalism just to be on the safe side. Remember, it puts you on the wrong side. For Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing. Those are strong words. This is obviously a big deal. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing proposition. Add anything to personal trust in Jesus. Become confident in your own works. Rely on someone else's tradition just in case. And you'll forego the saving merits of Jesus. His benefits no longer accrue to you. He says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You see, the legalist picks and chooses rich rules and rituals he wants to obey. But that's not how the law works. God's law isn't some spiritual smorgasbord. If you live by the law, then you have to live under the whole law. Did you kindle a fire yesterday? It was the Sabbath. Did you kindle a fire? Did you turn on a light switch? Did you turn on your stove, cook those chicken wings during the Bulldogs game? Did you do that? If you did, you broke the law. You blew it. Do you keep a kosher diet? After Thanksgiving, did you bite into a ham and cheese sandwich? You lawbreaker. If you did, you broke the law. Bow to the law in one point, and you become a slave to it all. Verse 4 is the strongest warning yet. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. See, it's one or the other. You can't trust in the work of Christ and in your own works at the same time. Either you're living by law or you're living by faith. He says, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Our only hope of ever being right with God is by faith. Which poses a question. If we stop having faith, how then can we continue to be right with God? And in these verses, Paul issues stern warnings. If a believer abandons or renounces their faith and stops trusting in Jesus, notice they become estranged from Christ. They have fallen from grace. Christ profits them nothing. These are grave, serious statements that the Apostle Paul makes. And to me, in light of them, it's hard to say such a person maintains their salvation. Understand, none of us receive God's acceptance because of what we do or don't do. So no one can lose their salvation because of what they do or don't do. It's by faith. It's not as if there are certain sins that are salvation snuffers. Commit them and you're no longer saved. No, we obtain and we maintain a right standing with God by faith. Yet evidently, faith isn't a once-and-for-all status. Or Paul wouldn't have been issuing these warnings. It's not a sign-on-the-bottom-line-for-life type of arrangement. Faith is a living thing. It's more like a plant. If you want your plant to live, then you water it. You feed it. But if you ignore that plant, it shrivels up and it dies. And this is how Paul sees our faith. He declares in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, You, he has reconciled, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Faith needs to be fed. It has to remain active and alive. You keep at it. You grow with it. Some Christians believe in what's called once saved, always saved. That once you believe in Jesus, you're in, regardless of any future decisions you might make. I used to believe that until I read the New Testament. For Paul is emphatic throughout. To be saved, we must continue in our faith. This is what he's stressing to these believers here in Galatia. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love in Christ religious deeds and badges don't matter God looks below the badge to the heart what makes you right with God is not whether you tithe or don't attend church or stay home read your Bible or the newspaper certainly godly habits may be ways that you demonstrate your love for God and that you grow in Christ but they don't determine God's love for you he accepts us and he blesses us, not because of our feats, but because of our faith. You know, I found a lot of pastors, they're afraid to preach God's grace. They think if they do, they'll give up their leverage. If Christians realize the reason God blesses us is because of what Jesus did, not what they do, what motivation will they have to serve and work and obey? I mean, who'll come to the next church work day if everyone thinks God will bless them even if they stay home? And yet these pastors don't recognize the power of God's grace. To tell a believer that God will bless them regardless, tell them that, and they'll love the Lord more intensely. That's been my reaction. I want to serve the Lord, not because I have to, but because he's been so good to me, I want to. His grace increases our motivation to serve. Paul tells us how this operates in verse 6. He says, faith works through love. The more you know of God's love for you, the more you'll trust him. And the more you trust him, the more he'll demonstrate his love. The law drives a wedge between us and God, whereas grace causes a bond. In verse 7, Paul asks the Galatians, he says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This toxic mixture of grace and grunt that the Galatians were following wasn't the message that Paul had taught them. He warns them, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Legalism is like yeast. It corrupts by puffing up. It plays on our pride. It inflates us. Legalism is show me religion. Oh, look at how good I am. And this kind of thinking, this kind of attitude can pollute an entire church. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased." The message that Paul preached was the cross of Christ, which offended Jewish minds. That Jesus had to die meant that man could never be good enough on his own. God's grace is an assault on human pride. Paul wasn't the target of Jewish persecution for preaching Old Testament legalism. Paul taught amazing grace, he says. And keep in mind, the flashpoint for the legalists in Galatia was circumcision." See, this was the rule on which the Judaizers insisted. According to them, you couldn't please God without it. And This is why Paul gets up in arms. He says in verse 12, he says, "...I can wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off." Paul gets angry here at these guys. He says to the legalists who insist on circumcision, if you think clipping the male foreskin is what pleases God, then why don't you just go all out and emasculate yourself? One paraphrase puts it, why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? By the way, when we go to Israel, uh, some of you will be happy to know that you'll, you'll, see, you'll be able to see the two trees. Named after Jewish circumcision. You know what they are. The the juniper. The juniper tree. And the eucalyptus. (laughs) Eucalyptus. Verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love, serve one another. Now for four chapters, Paul has commanded us to hold fast to our freedom in Christ. But he knows that this can be mistaken, that this can be misunderstood. Just because we're free from living under the law doesn't mean that we have liberty to sin. Yes, rules no longer govern a Christian's behavior, but that doesn't mean that his or her behavior doesn't matter. Law is out. But love is now in. We've swapped rules for a relationship with Jesus. Pleasing God is still the goal. But the method has now changed. See, the law worked from the outside in. You conform to outward rules. But grace puts us in touch with God. And His love transforms us from the inside out. Paul encourages us. He says, only do not... Use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. God wants us controlled not by law on the one hand or lust on the other, but by love. People gravitate toward the extreme. It's either legalism or license, but grace produces love. It's the love of Christ that causes gratitude toward God. Grace isn't an excuse to sin. It's a reason not to sin. Notice verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. And here it is. Drum roll, please. One word sums up the whole law, the whole Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the whole intent of the law is to love God and to love others. But the best way to walk in love is by grace. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And you see, the opposite of love is to snip and bite at people. Take a bite out of a good person's reputation. That's the opposite of love. You know, over the years, there have been several famous sports bites. In the 2014 World Cup, Ecuadorian footballer Luis Suarez bit his opponent's shoulder. Just got mad and bit him. You remember boxer Mike Tyson took a bite out of the ear of Evander Holyfield in a championship bout. And, of course, the number one bite of all time... Was when Ugga tried to bite that Auburn wide receiver. It does my heart good whenever I watch that. Yet, trust me, there's nothing glamorous or memorable about a Christian biting another brother or sister. No one is free to snip at each other with gossip and take a bite out of a reputation. Believers need to walk in love. He says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. If you want to walk in love, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is a biblical name for selfish desires. And how do you overcome a lifestyle of self-gratification? Some say the answer is willpower, or the power of positive thinking, or self-discipline, or the 12 steps, or psychotherapy. But no, the answer is much simpler. Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit. When you get caught up and wrapped up in God and in his spirit, you don't have time to pursue your own lusts. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And here Paul spotlights two different approaches to life. Either you see yourself in Christ... And walk in the Spirit, or you see yourself apart from Christ and walk in the flesh. Either your world revolves around Jesus, or it revolves around you. Either you're into Jesus, or you're into yourself. And get caught up in Jesus. Walk in the influence of the Holy Spirit, and you'll lose interest in your fleshly desires. He says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law The influence of God's Spirit does what the law could never do. He fills our hearts with God's love. In fact, these two approaches to life produce predictable paths. Paul lists the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The flesh, which is me apart from Christ, it's me at work. But the Holy Spirit inside me is God at work. And the result is fruit. Works are self-made but fruits are spirit-grown. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, And the like. Note this is not an exhaustive list. And the like refers to all the other sinful stuff that's in these same selfish categories. You know, the flesh doesn't produce a very impressive resume, does it? Left to ourselves, though, this is what we're capable of. Illicit sex and moral perversion and idolatry and temper tantrums and telling lies and believing lies and intoxication, and the like. That's what's expected from me. This is why mankind needed the former law. It protected us from us. It was a safeguard. And obviously, the works of the flesh, our works, can never work our way to God. For Paul says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, That those who practice such things or literally practice them habitually will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea here isn't that a single act of envy or hatred or even sexual sin is going to send a person to hell. But Paul is saying that a person who consistently practices these works of the flesh is proving that he or she doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus and that will send you to hell. The problem is evil habits, which reminds me of the dilemma that the nuns had at the convent when their washing machine broke down. Oh, it was dirty habits. Dirty (laughs) Dirty habits. Just trying to lighten it up a little bit, all right? But if you walk in the Spirit, you can also predict the results. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit His love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Notice these nine spiritual fruits are grown in three clusters of three each. Cluster one flows from our relationship with God. It's God who gives love and joy and peace. Before I knew Jesus, I knew nothing of all three. But Jesus filled my heart with his love, gave me an exceeding great joy, and put me at peace with him and with others. Cluster number two involves our relationship with each other. Long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness. We treat each other better when we walk in the Spirit. And cluster number three centers on our relationship with ourselves. Faithfulness. And gentleness, and self-control. None of these attributes are man-made. They're not mustered up by the flesh. They're the work of God's Spirit. Try to conjure up your own joy. It'll be short-lived. Try to make yourself be kind or exert your own self-control. It's fake fruit. But trust in the Holy Spirit to produce what you lack, and you'll manufacture true, genuine, juicy fruit, I call it. A spontaneous joy. A peace that flourishes despite our fears. Lasting patience. Genuine kindness. Decision-altering self-control. It's a beautiful life to walk in the Spirit and in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we become Christians, we die with Christ and he rises in us. But we need to acknowledge this reality in our daily living. Are we renouncing our flesh and its desires? And are we trusting in God's Spirit to live His life in us? Paul says in verse 25, For if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. God has made us spiritually alive by His Spirit. Now let's lean into Him in all that we do every day. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another Envying one another. God expects better from his kids. Walk in the spirit and you'll walk in love. Well chapter 6 begins. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Now the word here translated trespass refers to a lapse, a stumble, a slip up. Paul isn't referring here to the false teacher who deliberately spews false doctrine. He's already told us what to do with him. We're to cast him out, we were told in chapter 4. No, the brother that we should help is the person who falls victim to his own weakness. And we're told to restore him, not condemn him, but restore him. The word is used in the New Testament to describe the setting of a broken bone. This is a tender task. It involves a careful evaluation of the break, a gentle manipulation of the bones, which is the reason it's not the job of a novice. Paul is specific. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And how do you do it? In a spirit of gentleness. The word gentleness is translated in other places as meekness, which means strength under control, a firmness Tempered with love. When a little boy comes to his mom with a boo-boo, she doesn't start by poking and prodding. No, she first affirms her love for him. And that's how we should approach someone who needs to be restored. So it is with a saint who slipped. You don't barge in with both barrels blazing. Hey, buddy, shape up or ship out. You run him off before you can bandage his wounds you got to be firm but loving. And the best way to strike that balance is to take heed to what comes next. He says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Hey, be humble or you'll stumble. If not for the grace of God, so go I. We should always remember that. Never underestimate your own ability and my own ability to blow it. Legalism creates a self-righteous, judgmental church, while grace produces a healing environment. I know how we need that. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. After your brother is restored, your job isn't over. For in the restoration, you might discover that there were stresses and pressures that led to his collapse. That's why we need to help him bear his burdens until God removes them or teaches him how to carry them. When we get under someone else's load and help lighten it in some way, Paul says we are fulfilling the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Since I'm on a roll this morning, here's a riddle for you. What does the mama whale say to her baby? Son, it's only when you're spouting that you get harpooned. And the same is true for us. Don't get haughty. At times we're called to carry someone else's load. At other times someone helps us carry a load. As a Christian, we spend time on both ends of a burden. Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. At first, this sounds contradictory. What do you mean? Do we bear one another's burdens or do we bear our own load? And of course, the answer is both. We're responsible for each other, sure, but my responsibility for you never supersedes your responsibility for yourself. Your burden is still your burden. You can't blame it on me. And God promises that you won't be tempted above what you can handle. We can bear our own load, and we should. Now the topic shifts to spiritual investments. And one of the best investments you can make is to support good Bible teaching. For he says in verse 6, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Did you know Christianity was the first religion whose teachers relied on the voluntary contributions of the folks they taught? Judaism exacted a tax on people to pay for their priests. Roman religions also promoted fees and dues. But a tithe is not a tax. Rather than an invoice, think of it as an investment. Bless the teacher in proportion to how much you've been blessed by what he's taught. You know, once a pastor, he told his church that he had a $200 sermon that would take him 10 minutes to preach. He had a $100 sermon that would take him 30 minutes to preach. And then he had a $10 sermon that would take him all of an hour. He told everyone that once the offering had been collected and counted, then he'd decide which sermon to preach. Shrewd pastor, if you ask me. In verse 7, Paul continues his thoughts on spiritual investments. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Here's a natural law that also applies to the spiritual realm. Sow corn, and what will you get? You'll be up to your ears in corn. A farmer understands this principle. He would never sow corn and expect soybeans. You reap what you sow. And the same is true spiritually, for he who sows to his flesh, that selfish side of him, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. How do you walk in the spirit? You sow to the spirit. You sow good things, God's things. Sow to the flesh, That is, entertain thoughts that promote sinful and selfish thinking, and you're going to end up corrupt. You're going to end up rotten. See, here's the rule of thumb. Garbage in, garbage out. Fill your head with impure images and filthy talk, and your life will gravitate downward. You'll wake up in bondage to what you thought was just fun and games. Notice what Paul says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This is a natural law. It's a divine principle. It's like the law of gravity. Hey, hey, you can doubt the law of gravity if you like. You can deny it. You can defy it. You can jump off a bridge and shout all the way down that you don't believe in gravity. Even halfway down, you can shout, see, nothing's happened to me yet. And then splat. God is not mocked. You can't disobey his laws and succeed. Like the guy who sowed his wild oats Monday through Saturday and then went to church on Sunday and prayed for a crop failure. It doesn't work that way. When you download a song or when you stream a movie or when you browse a website, remember, you reap what you sow. And realize what's so deceptive about this law of sowing and reaping. You seldom reap in the same season that you sow. See, if harvest came the day after the planting, farming would be easier. But it doesn't. A farmer seldom reaps at the same time that he sows. And this is also true spiritually. What we sow today can take years to sprout its fruit. Oh, adultery is fun for a while. But when infidelity blossoms, there's hell to pay. On the other hand, studying your Bible... And learning to pray can be hard. It can seem laborious, like planting on a hot day. But when you harvest its riches, you realize it's worth it. If you want to grow a strong faith, then sow good seed, spiritual seed. Log on to Bible teaching. Open up the Word and read it for yourself. Listen to Christian music. Take walks with God. Think God's thoughts. The more you sow to the Spirit, the more you'll reap godliness. And This is why Paul says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Our biggest obstacle is weariness. We get tired. We can get discouraged, and we're tempted to give up. We need endurance. Press on. Don't grow weary in doing good. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, we all take care of our family before we feed strangers. It's just the right thing to do. And the same should be the priority in the body of Christ. Let's help everyone. But first, we need to help our own church and our own members. We try to keep this in mind here at Calvary Chapel. Now Paul starts to wrap up his letter to the Galatians in verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, we learn that Paul dictated his letters through a stenographer. And then he would sign them with his own signature to assure the letter's authenticity. But Galatians was the exception. For Paul was so passionate about this letter, its subject, God's grace, and its recipients, the Galatians, that he wrote it with his own hand, he says. Paul penned this letter himself, and he did so with large letters. Some folks think that Paul wrote in large letters because of his eye problems. Remember, we talked about the possibility of his thorn in the flesh being trachoma, an eye disease. Maybe it had flared up. So he wrote this letter with large letters. Of course, it could have been that he just wanted the Galatians to make sure they read every word. You remember at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, the words John Hancock are in abnormally large letters. Apparently, Hancock used large script to make sure King George saw his name. He didn't want it to miss it. This may have been Paul's motive. He didn't want the Galatians to miss these truths that he was speaking to them. Paul concludes Galatians by returning to the false teacher's pet peeve. Remember, it was circumcision. He says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Faith in the cross made all rituals, even circumcision, obsolete. If circumcision or any other religious rite can save, then Jesus would have never had to die. Thus the cross reveals the impotence of all our rituals. The cross put an end to religion, really. Today, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The false teachers were hypocrites, They browbeat the Galatians into circumcision while there were areas of the law that they themselves ignored. The Galatians just wanted to control people. Some people like that. They, They just want to put notches in their belt. People that they control, they've influenced. They just like the power. Paul says that was true of these false teachers. And then he says in verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul did more for the cause of Christ than probably any other Christian who's ever lived. And yet when he looked at his resume, his only reason to boast was what Jesus had done for him. He had gone to the cross. And the cross changed Paul's life. He says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Before Paul came to Jesus, this world's power and wealth and religion had a hold on him. But at the cross, the world was exposed for the evil it is. At the cross, all the world's systems... Its governments and its religion and its education joined forces to execute an innocent man and for no other reason than their own jealousy and fear. Now, after seeing what the world had done to Jesus, Paul says, I will never be enchanted by this world and its charms again. Never. Paul died to whatever hold this world had on him after going to the cross, the cross of Jesus. Author Neil Strait makes a penetrating observation. He says, Christ on our cross is the way Calvary really reads. He died for us in our place. We then are debtors. Strange that so often we act like we owe nothing. Why is it when the world knocks on our heart's door, we react as if we owe it a hearing? Not so. Let's renounce this world and any hold that it might have on us. It crucified our Savior. What are we doing flirting with it now? We have a debt for sure, but it's not to this world. Our obligation is to the Savior hanging on that cross. And then he says in verse 15, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Again, it's not what we've done or can do for God that counts, but it's what Jesus has done for us. We're a new creation by the work of Jesus on the cross. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He says, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body... The marks of the Lord Jesus. These false teachers in Galatia, they'd been troubling Paul. They had questioned the legitimacy of his message. And they were even questioning the sincerity of his ministry. And he's tired of them. He's tired of dealing with them. And so he rips off his shirt. And he shows them the crisscross scars on his torso. The results of his stoning in Lystra for having preached the gospel. Paul says his scars were proof of the suffering that he had endured to bring the gospel to Galatia. It was his pot marks and the scars of his body that testified to his sincerity. Don't question my sincerity. I have the scars to prove it. You know, Adoniram Judson was a Christian missionary to Burma. For seven years he was imprisoned and kept in leg irons and handcuffs for preaching the gospel. His wrists and his ankles bore severe scarring. Upon his release, Judson asked the Burmese king if he might be granted permission to preach about Jesus. Couldn't stop the man. The king responded, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Paul also boasted, in his scars for Christ's sake. Paul ends his gospel of grace. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And I want to end with a short quote that to me sums up the message of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It reads, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. We are saved, and we stand, and we live, and we grow all through faith in God's amazing grace. Don't throw away your freedom. Stand free. Live free. Stay free. In Jesus' name.